So you're walking down the street in Hollywood and you discover a box of letters between the Star Trek producers. A treasure trove of insider information. What would you do? Well, I found that box. And he shared it with me, John Kramer. I shared it with Kramer. So that we could share it with the universe. Nomad, the perfect Star Trek podcast. Hello and welcome to the perfect Star Trek podcast where we know things about Star Trek that you don't. And why is that? Because we have letters, correspondence, and emails straight from the desks of the Star Trek producers. My name is David Pompey, and as always, I'm here with my buddy Kramer. Hello, Mr. Pompey. Great to be back after our short hiatus. Yes, we had a hiatus, but we're back and now, I, I, yeah. and we're better than ever because uh, yeah. Mr. Kramer brought it all back. So thank you for that, John. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, I was busy, too. I was uh, traveling in Texas for a while. I've never been there before, so I was in... Uh, Austin and uh, Corpus Christi. And we're not going to say anything more about that. <laughs> My brother lives in the Dallas area. Uh, uh-huh. So, yeah, I, I've been down to Texas quite a few times. Uh, Houston, Austin, Dallas, mostly Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, I like it down there. Food's good. A little hot. Yeah. A little hot. <laughs> yeah, not when I was there. It was beautiful when I was there in the, in the fall. So, well, that sounds like a whole lot of fun. Uh We've got quite a bit going on in today's show. Yes, we do. This is a uh, something uh, new for us. We're doing a two-part episode. Well, we've actually done two-parters before, but this one's slightly different, right? So, uh, yes, we've got two letters uh, we have from then former producer Michael, Michael Piller to then current producer Jerry Taylor. Discussing right. two episodes in pre-production, one of which was the first of a two-part episode. Right. <laughs> so that's that's kind of confusing. It is very confusing, but we're we're going to try and uh, simplify it here. But we're covering two stories. One is uh, the Q and the Gray, and then the other one is the first of a two-part. <laughs> the first episode, of a two-part episode. Is, uh, future's end. Right. Uh, But first, uh, before we get into that, we've got a little bit of Star Trek news. Star Trek news! Sad news, as a matter of fact. Uh, The passing of actress Camille Saviolet. I believe it's Saviolet. At age 71. And for those of you who may not know uh, her performances on Star Trek, she's mostly known. I believe she had a couple of other parts, but she's mostly known as Kyle Paca from the Deep Space Nine series and for a, a character that uh-huh. I don't want to say had a minor role right. in the series. Uh, she didn't get a lot of screen time for that character because the character uh, sacrifices herself early on, but uh, right. the impact of Kyle Paca was huge in the series. Right. But that's uh, that. But she, you know, she was pretty significant on the show. And then, um, mm-hmm. then of course, also we have uh, uh, Nickelodeon <laughs> and Paramount Plus has premiered their show, Star Trek Prodigy. It's an animated series for children. And I, I just, I'm gonna guess you haven't watched it, but uh, <laughs> I did watch the first episode. It's a, it's the 
Uh, it's, you know, it's a kid's show. So I will be watching Prodigy uh, and we will see uh, my take on it. But again, it's a kid's show. How bad could it be? Right. Well, that's Star Trek news. Star Trek news. Um, and we will be right back and get into these letters. This week's letters are from June and July of 1996, and they deal with the episodes, as we said, The Q and the Gray, as well as Part 1 of Future Zen. And boy, did Michael Piller have a lot to get off his chest about these episodes, which is why we're going to break them into two parts. Um, yeah, he, uh, he really went in podcast. on The Q and the Gray uh, in a way that I don't think we've ever we've seen so far in our shows. This uh, show first aired on November 27th of 1996, and it was written by Kenneth Biller and based on a story by Sean Piller, the son of Michael Piller. The fact that this is your son and you've got to be critical of this and you've got to separate yourself from it. Good luck with that. This is to Jerry Taylor from Michael Piller, C.C. Rick Berman, and it's dated June 24th, 1996. Uh, R.E. Futures in Part 1, First Draft Teleplay, 7-22-96, Braga and Monoski. And The Q in the Gray, Second Draft Story Outline, dated 7-23-96, Pillar and Biller. And the letter starts, Jerry, I am very concerned. I'm concerned because I don't see Jerry Taylor in this material. I know your work well enough to know that these are not the kind of stories you like to write. You have been invaluable to this franchise for your sensitivity, your ability to communicate stories in human terms, the way you bring heart to Star Trek. There is none of that in this material. This is all stuff. Wow. From a conceptual standpoint, yeah. <laughs> I believe it is a serious mistake, perhaps a fatal one, to be doing stories about Voyager saving the universe. And it happens in all three hours that I'm dealing with here, the two-parter and the Q story. Star Trek's canvas is large, but the stories have always been intimate. They've been about our people. They've explored the moral dilemmas of the human condition. Bigger is not necessarily better in this franchise. I don't know if this new direction is a reaction to the research or responding to the studio's orders or an expression of freedom from my own philosophies, but I know it isn't you. I strongly urge you to make this season your own and bring the emotional texture back to the storytelling that you do so well. Okay, now the rest of the letter um, is uh, it's going to the rest of the letter is, uh, is a take on the uh, the episode Future's End, but we're going to skip to the end of the letter because that's where he picks up the Q and the Gray. So we're just going to do the Q and the Gray today. And I'm sorry, I, I, I should probably mention for those of you who don't remember the episode, the Q and the Gray, it stars John Delancey as Q as a as a special guest star. And uh, it's all about his uh, <laughs> desire to mate with Janeway because there's trouble in the Q continuum and they're having a civil war. And so he thinks that by mating with Janeway, they'll come up with like a super Q. And Janeway obviously does not want to mate with him. 
So, uh, all right. So let's pick up on page five. Uh, Mr. Pillar had quite a lot. Yes. To say. Well, we're gonna. So on page five, he starts. The Q in the gray doesn't work at all for me. I've gone out of my way not to read Sean's original story so that so that I would not be relating to it. But originally, this was a charming premise about a romantic triangle between a female Q, our regular Q, and Janeway. Now it's been turned into another battle that threatens the universe. Our hero's role in this story is essentially to watch, react, and then do a standard rescue. I think that the Civil War metaphor is a difficult one to believe in context because of the nature of Q's being omnipotent and immortal. In addition, you say it's only a metaphor that humans can understand, but then you have real Civil War-like jeopardy come out of that metaphor, and I don't think that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with Pillar. This this whole Civil War thing is just stupid, you know, because you he says that it diminishes the Q continuum, and I really agree with that because you know they they reach through all of human history for a battle, uh, you know, to to uh, you know handle this revolution that Q Q's uh, leading, and they come up with the American Civil War, and. You know, it just it doesn't fit. I mean, they're fighting. You know, the American Civil War. They're fire. They're fighting to free the slaves, basically. Here, it's just they have a disagreement on how they want to do things, and it's just it's just stupid. It doesn't fit. Most of all, I think it's a fundamental mistake to make this story about the continuum. This should be a story about our people, about Janeway. We already went to the continuum. We saw it. We did the metaphor gag. Why do it again? I find all the sexual conversation and attitudes to be very adolescent and inappropriate. Completely agree with that. I also don't really get why Q feels the need to even go to Janeway to mate, because he says he can mate with an amoeba. And that begs the question, and why are there female Qs then? Um, you know, what, I mean, how, how do they reproduce? They just, you know, at the end of the episode, they show them touching fingers. Is that how he was going to do it with Janeway? Just touch fingers. I mean, the whole, the whole, just everything about the way they handled the, the, the Q's sexuality and stuff was just dumb. I, I think they were probably trying to back off of the sexuality. Yeah. Well, the way he, I mean, he is just all over her and, you know, won't take no for an answer, that kind of thing. And I wasn't embarrassed. I just thought it was bad. That's a good word. A good I word didn't buy the bad. Civil War thing either. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was a little it was a very strange scene. Um, also, whoever the wardrobe uh, uh, person was on the show should be shot. And I'm surprised that. Uh, Kate McGrew didn't shoot her because they looked like they dressed her in old curtains and she looks like somebody's uh, spinster aunt. Uh, you know, it just she just looks just terrible in that dress. Whereas the uh, female Q and like, why couldn't they give her a name other than the female Q? I mean, that seems kind of weird. She looks terrific. You know, it's like the, you know, I can't, you know, McGrew's the star of the show. And it's like she said, 
Yeah, um, I'll wear this dress. It makes me look like I put a. I'd rather. I'd like to put a bag over my head. Uh, but you know, give the really nice dress to the know nothing guest guest star on the show. And he says he finds yeah. the attitudes to be very adolescent and inappropriate. Uh, the suggestion that he could take her by force is uncomfortable. The romantic gestures strike me as not clever enough for our cue. You might get some humor on page three if Q is the dog, but to have Q ultimately want somebody to love him for who he is to experience the joys of a lasting committed relationship. Boy, that just seems to undermine the Q I've always known and enjoyed. And yes, mm -hmm. it's true. Um, it, he, he, he says it kinds, <laughs> it kinds of makes him thud down to earth. As a viewer, I'm not sure if I really care if the continuum is in a civil war. What I care about is our people. What problems do they have to face here? Janeway's role in this play is basically to open her legs, and I find that embarrassing. Wow. Wow. And then it's signed, Michael. Wow. Ah, uh, that's woo. <laughs> I I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, part we read was from July. Uh, now, this is a letter not printed on the standard Star Which Trek. Which is uh, the letterhead. Two the Gray first draft. And this one is dated August 29th, uh, approximately five weeks later. And it's and to it, Jerry, C.C. Rick, R.E., the Q and the Gray first draft. And he says... I'm with you for about 25 pages, with the exception of some notable taste issues. Ken's writing is sharp and witty, but when the Civil War begins, you've lost me. I have a lot of serious problems, but perhaps the big two are, one, I just don't believe it. <laughs> wow, that's a hell of a problem. <laughs> and two, it all yeah, it terribly is. diminishes our cue and the cue continuum. I don't buy the exposition regarding the equal number of Q. It feels completely bogus to me. And basing it all on the last episode is a heavy burden for this story to bear. The whole reason that Q dragged Janeway into it is not believable either. I don't believe that in a perception of reality, when something impossible to comprehend is brought down to human dimensions, that you can then interact with the perception as in fighting the battle. In simplest terms, I don't see how Janeway picks up a perceived rifle and fires a perceived shot. Is she, in reality, imploding a star when she fires? What's the logic? I don't get how the crew flies into an imploding star, a gag which I like, yeah, it didn't work and enough. into the perceived reality. None of it works for me. What's more, the very idea that the Qs have divided into two camps and are coming up with extraordinary weapons to kill each other makes them ordinary. That Q himself is leader of a revolution rather than a singular maverick makes him less interesting. We seem to have lost everything that has made Q the most interesting adversary in the history of the franchise. Yeah, when Pillar says that Q is the most, I guess, like interesting uh, antagonist, whatever, uh, in the in the franchise's history, you know, I, I kind of agree with him because 
he was in, you know, the first episode of Next Generation, you know, which is a good episode. But the last episode, All Good Things, was fantastic. And Q played a huge part in that. And so when you see him used like that, he is just a terrific character and a terrific antagonist. But then, you know, sometimes they dumb him down too much. And I know, you know, they, they want to throw a little comic relief in there and everything. But, I you know, I just think that sometimes they just, you know, give uh, John Delancey a bad script, you know, because he's really capable of delivering good stuff when they actually write it for him. Suggestion that you will hate. If there must be a civil war, make it one scene that Q takes Janeway to to observe. You can even do it with stock and putting them on a civil war battlefield. But then get out of it. And once again, I mean, we've mentioned this before. As far as I can tell, they didn't take no. any advice that he gave, no. they gave him here. Uh, if anything, they went in the other direction, uh, which is what, you know, he at this point is working as a consultant to the show. And I guess I'm sure they're paying him pretty good money to write these letters and stuff, but they don't seem to pay any attention no, to anything he has to they say. Don't. And that goes back to what he said in the previous letter from five weeks ago uh, in this timeline, um, that maybe yeah. some of these things are a reaction to wanting to get out from under his philosophy. Right. Janeway must be the center of this whole thing. It must be about her. One passing thought. Make her pregnant with Q's child, who is to be the God who will bring peace to the continuum, according to some Q scripture. Thus, she is Mary, mother of God. That's incomplete and not satisfactory. Not, But somehow you have to make this Janeway story. Janeway's character is dubious. She's ready to jump into Chakotay's arms at a touch and is affected by a puppy dog to take Q more seriously. I won't list the blue jokes here, but there are a dozen or so of them. I'm sure Rick has crossed them all out by now, but there's no place for explicit sexual references, in my opinion. Yeah, and I have to agree with uh, Michael Piller here about the dog. I mean, you know, he shows up with, a dog and Janeway is ready to jump in the bed with him suddenly. Uh, you know, the way they, they handled Janeway in these early uh, episodes, you know, it's like they didn't know what to do with her as a sexual uh, being. She does the same thing with Chakotay, kind of like every, you know, like the, 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 the most intimate they ever get is they put, he puts his, his hand on her arm or something and she seems to kind of melt at it. And, uh, Q, so she's sort of doing the same thing here with Q and the dog, and the dog, and it just seems stupid, you know. Like really, that I mean, I know she has a dog back home, but she's gonna just melt over this. It's just dumb. He goes on to say the female Q is an underdeveloped suits. character. She's a one, she's a one note bore, not a, a worthy mate for Q. There are no personal stakes here. I don't feel anything from this episode. Page nine, Janeway's log begs the question, how does a Q woo? I feel cheated as a viewer that I didn't get to see. Page 12, the cut between 16 and 17 suggests either a dream or that sex yeah, has yeah. taken place, neither of which is true. 
Page 13. There we go. I like this scene. I wish we knew what that was. Page 14. The new Baywatch program in the holodeck feels terribly gratuitous. Babes for ratings? I find it embarrassing. Also, I have to say that this is one of the worst holographic programs I've ever seen on an episode of Star Trek. I mean, first of all, they're, they're stuck in a ship. And what they choose to do to relax is put themselves in like a courtyard at a Marriott somewhere. That I mean, that's what it looks like, you know, where they've staged this kind of Lua thing. And then why have all of these um, fake, hol- you know, these holograms walking around in bikinis and stuff when they know they're fake, when, you know, what's wrong with, okay, Carrie's wearing a, uh, and, and uh, uh, Tom, I think, are wearing uh, Hawaiian shirts and stuff, which is fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, why aren't other crew members walking around in the bikinis or in the Speedos or whatever? I mean, this should be a way for them to socialize, out, you know, on in you know an interesting, you know, scenario. And it should be on a beach. There should be waves. Maybe they're surfing or something. Uh, but it just seems it just seems stupid to me. Page 20, the bitch joke. That's all he says. The bitch joke. I don't remember the bitch joke. No, I don't. I think they caught it. 20 or Rick Berman did. 23 to 25. Stars imploding off the starboard bow and more seems to make space small. Yeah, and the, this is one of the few things that I kind of don't get what Pillar is talking about here when he says stars imploding off the starboard bow makes space seem small. I mean, what is I, it, that? Just seems weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. Page 32. Just one more unbelievable touch when Q adds the silly law speech at the bottom. No credibility for me. Page 33. Q tells Janeway that he doesn't ever find her attractive. Not very flattering for our captain. Yeah, he compares <laughs> Amoeba instead of you. Here's her to an amoeba. Page 34. More fun to seduce you line. Q is reduced to a clown by his behavior in this episode. And page 54. I want the blindfold when Janeway says, if you're going to kill me, you're going to have to look me in the eye. Yeah, and that's us at all. Good luck with this one. Wow. He goes, I want want the blindfold. (laughs) That is. That's hilarious. Um. Yeah, one of my least favorite episodes. Uh, I, I didn't like it at all. It, it felt like they needed a Q story. Like, oh, we've got to put the Q back. I, I, I thought the Q were incredibly interesting uh, for a long time on the series. It started to, I thought, the interest in Q, from my perspective, yeah. started to go down on Deep Space Nine. Um, yeah, it, it, it seemed to lose something. And then by the time we get to, uh, the Q and the gray, I, I think they, they were done. Uh, we didn't need to see any. Yeah, and, and to go to the reaction for this, I, you know, I look universally, <laughs> uh, Kate Mulgrew and John Delancey and all love the, uh, I was, you know, kind of sh- shocked, but I don't know if they're just doing it because I think she and, uh, and John Delancey were friends outside of the show. For them, it was fun to work together, but uh, yeah, it just it just really shocked me that they that they had such good things to say about it. 
So how well do you think Q and the Gray holds up 25 years after it first aired? Well, I mean, the first thing that, that pops into my mind after watching, you know, like Discovery and stuff is that, you know, why is everybody in the Q continuum white? I mean, at least they've added some females, although I, actually you only see the one female. Every other Q they show you is a male. So, you know, that, that would not stay the same t uh, 25 years later. We're back uh, oh, to wrap good. up this week's episode. And as we said at the start, good. this is the first of a two-part episode. And we'll be back next week with our discussion of Michael Pillar's thoughts on Future's End, part one. And he really, like, he had some, a lot of stuff to say about that one as well. All right, uh, Kramer, thanks a lot, and uh, thanks you folks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please yes, share it with other Star Trek fans everywhere, good or bad. Post about it on social media, uh, leave a rating and a review. And uh, we'll see you next week with part two. Uh, you can catch all the latest. You can follow us on Instagram. We don't have an Instagram, do we? And uh, we've got a website. Uh, you can certainly follow us there at uh, the perfect star trek podcast.com and we, we have a twitter that every <laughs> now somewhere we i don't think something. we use it yet though Man, generally speaking our interns not really holding uh, up around here I we may have to get tom. some new interns. tom you're fired all right <laughs> did we get the names all right well we'll see you guys uh next week kramer out kramer out <laughs>